This talk is called Antidotes to the Fear of Death. I have one right here. Can you let me borrow a cloth? And it has skulls and flowers on it for this session. So I'm actually going to read a poem by that title, Antidotes to a Fear of Death. This is by Rebecca Elson. The book is called A Responsibility to Awe. She's a poet and a cosmologist. Antidotes to fear of death. Sometimes as an antidote to fear of death, I eat the stars. Those nights lying on my back, I suck them from the quenching dark till they are all, all inside me, pepper hot and sharp. Sometimes, instead, I stir myself into a universe still young, still warm as blood. No outer space, just space. The light of all the not-yet-stars drifting like a bright mist, and all of us and everything already there, but unconstrained by form. And sometimes it's enough to lie down here on earth beside our long ancestral bones, to walk across the cobble fields of our discarded skulls, each like a treasure, like a chrysalis, thinking, Whatever left these husks flew off on bright wings. Antidotes to a fear of death. Yesterday, Fuho asked people during the group Sanzen a very poignant question for this Sanzen Why did you come to this Sashin? This Sashin with its particular theme on peri-nirvana, on death and dying. As I mentioned earlier, this sashin tends to be a homing call for those who have recently had touches with the mystery we call death and tends to keep many others away. Oh, that's not for me, perhaps we think. I haven't lost anyone close to me. I'm too young to think about death. It's just not the right time. During Group Sanzen, though, everyone shared some personal story. And as stories were shared, memories were touched. And I think we all realized how close death is, how personal and intimate death is. And in that, this sashin is a very personal and intimate sashin. Contemplating death, reflecting on death, brings those we have lost closer to life. Hearing each other's stories, making space for our own grief and awe, stirs compassion. As I have contemplated death more deeply over the years, this sashin being a 
wonderful reminder. I feel closer to our human ancestors, our Buddhist ancestors, who we think are deceased. Yet, what does that mean? How can a deceased person be more alive? Isn't that interesting? I think a lot of people have this experience, though, of connecting to a loved one after death, and the relationship changes, but the intimacy continues in new ways. My mom is exploring that right now with her mom, and is finding her mom in these mysterious lights that come on in the middle of the night, motion lights in her bedroom, that when there's no motion, and the TV that comes on. And it's just, it's sweet to witness her just like constantly connecting to my grandmother. They had a very, very close relationship. When I started working on koans with Chosen Roshi, I framed a picture of my Zumi Roshi and put it on my altar. I don't quite know why. I wasn't really thinking about anything much. It just felt like the right thing to do. And during that time, I had a series of dreams of doing Sanzen with my Zumi Roshi. And somehow my attention to his life in, um, in framing his picture and paying attention to him as part of this lineage gave me a personal experience of who he was as a teacher. Probably very different than if he was alive, but in some way I touched into that relationship with my Dharma grandfather. A chosen Roshi has had an interest in death um, outside of the Buddhist scriptures, the de in death and the afterlife. So she teaches uh, a class called Preparing for Your Own Death and has led this Parinirvana Sashin in its unique form, um, coming up with guided meditations to give us a taste of this exploration and how we can do it while we're still alive. And she has had an interest and introduced me and the Sangha to the literature and videos on near-death experiences and people's experiences on the place between lives. So this isn't um, Buddhist scripture, so I'm not going to get too much into it during this talk or during this sashin. But it's really helped for me to open up a fascination with the mystery of death. And, and just to notice where my own um, fixed beliefs that I have about the afterlife or about um, what happens after we die. And it comes often from a materialist, like scientific point of view. And so this these stories and uh, this literature has really opened my personal mind <laughs> to how mysterious death is, that perhaps death is not an ending, that perhaps maybe we're already dead, that perhaps what we call embodied life is just a small piece of our evolution, that our ancestors may be with us, that maybe we have spiritual guides, companions of an invisible nature, that perhaps we choose this life, or some part of us chose this life to continue the evolution of the soul. 
Those are all open questions. I'm not stating those as fact at all. It's just interesting for me to include those perspectives. I was reflecting when Fuho asked people during group Sanzen um, on Zoom why people came to this Sashin, and I never got to choose to come to this Sashin. As a resident, we just do Sashin every month, and one of them every year is the Peri Nirvana Sashin. So I wondered if I would have chosen to come on my own. I did choose to teach this one, so maybe. I feel grateful, though, to have spent three months of my life immersed in this deep contemplation on the experiential level of silent sashim practice contemplating death. This would be my, this is my 12th Parinirvana sashim. I appreciate how this contemplation for me has carried over into dreams, into contemplations outside the meditation hall, outside the sashin environment, that there is a continuous curiosity about the nature of life and the nature of death. That definitely is part of Zen practice, but I think heightened from uh, this kind of sashin. Everyone has some relationship to death. That's part of what makes us human. And I think it's really actually quite healthy and relieving and refreshing to contemplate death, to talk about death. It helps in one sense to clarify life because we often put these as a set of polarities. So the more we contemplate death or clarify life and death, maybe the more fully we can live. And maybe the more fully we can die when it's time to die. So some questions that have been on my mind to get your own heart stirring into this theme. When did you first realize that you were going to die? When did you first realize you were going to die? Probably sometime in childhood. I remember Chosen Roshi asked that question. It took a while for me to find it, but other people were sharing and I found one. Instant was actually quite potent. What is your first memory of death? What is your first memory of death? How has your relationship to death changed over the course of your life? Are you afraid to die? And what happens when you die? Where will you go? I have friends now who are hospice workers, death doulas, and grief counselors. And they say that when families are able to speak openly about death, so much healing can happen, which makes a lot of sense. A a deep intimacy can open up. To ask somebody, someone you know quite well, what they believe happens when you die. This can open a window into their deep heart. You may discover things about them that you didn't expect. 
you might see how mystical someone is or how pragmatic. You might touch the currents of myth or imagination or dreams. And of course, such a question can bring up a lot of fear or unresolved angst or a mixture of fear, anxiety, anger, hope, wonder, relief. It can be relieving and generous at the right time to talk about death with those you love. A session like this, where we look directly at the nature of life and death, can open space for the mystery of existence to be appreciated. There's no right way to talk about death, but coming from your own experience, your own sincerity, your own questions, can really help somebody else feel more relaxed and at ease with the conversation. Muman Khan, Case 46. Totsuto's Three Barriers. Totsudo had three barriers that he used to test his Zen students. The first, getting rid of your illusions and penetrating into the truth is done by seeing into your nature. At this moment, what is your nature? The first, getting rid of your illusions and penetrating into the truth is done by seeing into your nature. At this moment, where is your nature? When you realize, number two, when you realize what your nature is, you are free from life, free from death. When the light falls from your eyes that last time, how are you free? Number two, when you realize what your nature is, you are free from life, free from death. When the light falls from your eyes that final time, how are you free? Number three, if you have freed yourself from life and death, you know where to go. When the four elements separate, where do you go? If you have freed yourself from life and death, you know where to go. When the four elements separate, where do you go? This koan cuts right to the heart of it. Koans are ex essential life questions. They're not meant to be solved with the mind. They are actually <clears throat> meant to trip up the mind, to send us deep into our own doubts. Not our skeptical doubts, but our doubts about what it means to be alive. Who am I? What does it mean to be free from life and death? What does it mean to be free from life and death? The Buddha's body wasn't free. When, you're, when you free yourself, who is it? Who is that you who is free? To clarify the first begins to clarify the rest. What is this self-nature? Who are you really? Who are you really? Without your costumes, identities, roles, responsibilities, without all those thoughts pulling you in this direction and that direction, 
without your judgments, without all that ways that you keep yourself busy or try to maintain control, who are you really? Beyond this particular shape of body, skin, flesh, bones, who are you really? We are so accustomed to storying our life. We have some memories from the past. They arise and we have an emotional response, never questioning if they are true. As I get older, I come to appreciate that most of my childhood is now in the realm of myth. The memories I held on to as I retell them I always have an element of, wait, that might have been a dream, but if that wasn't a dream, this is how it happened. Perhaps this is true, though, of all past memories. We tend to only remember certain things about an event, and often those things are exaggerated, or they're not the shared memory of other people who are involved. One practice I have been doing during this sashin is to feel into the previous moment. So paying attention to, I like to invite you into this practice right now. The feeling into the sensations of breath, just notice where you feel them. And once a sensation of breath arises, Try to, try to hold on to it. Try to lean back into it, to let it linger. What happens? What are you left with? Who is, who is the one who's feeling? leaning back into the previous moment of experience, whether it's breath or body sensation or sound, relaxing back into it, it vanishes. Vanishes before we even begin that exercise. Where can it be found? Where is it? Did it even exist? From within your own experience, does anything take form? So you can continue to explore that. In a way, I get this sense of I'm falling through the experience and then the self falls through. I'm left in that unbounded state a little, taste of it. I love that word Fuho gave us yesterday, unbounded. How do you practice dying moment to moment? Can you let your mind unbind? You know, it feels like sometimes I come to Sashina, it feels like my mind is just wound up. All the things I was doing, all the, yeah, just all the activity, all the thoughts, all the plans. And then I sit down and I just don't have to deal, like I don't have to do anything with those and just let them unbind themselves. 
I love that question. Like, who are your thoughts referring to? We take this idea of I so seriously. But to even insert that question, who does that I refer to? It's a way of allowing those thoughts to just bounce off of nothing. And the ones that stick, what are the ones that stick? I mean, that's equally interesting. How do you bind yourself? There's, there's this poet, Ted Kuzer. Kuzner? Kuzer. No, Jim Harrison. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he has this poem. I've tied myself up many times with no rope. And just think of that, how we do that. That's like the human condition, right? We're tied up with no rope. So how do you unspool? How do you let your mind unspool itself? Let your body unbind. We're focusing on relaxation for that, for that reason. Unbinding during body practice, unbinding in zazen, and noticing what, what, what binds you, what pulls you back together. Is it fear? Is it certain thoughts? Is it a certain reaction? How can you let go? Loosen the grip. I started this talk reading Antidotes for the Fear of Death. I think what I've mentioned so far as antidotes are demystifying death through openly talking about it or reflecting on it, reflecting on what beliefs we hold in regards to death, learning about others' experiences, looking directly into the nature of life and who we think we are. These are all ways of meeting the fear of death. Some people say, I've heard this a lot over the years during the Sashin, that they aren't afraid of death. They just don't want to suffer. And I appreciate that. I feel like I said that my first Sashin. But there are many layers to the fear of death. So there's the fear of that finality, letting go the last breath, the existential fear of what what happens? Where am I going to go? Am I going to be alone? What's next? However yours takes shape. But then there are the fears about timing, the kind of death, fears that you might not realize until you're in particular situations, like being home alone and hearing somebody in the downstairs who doesn't live there, or hiking in the wilderness in cougar country or bear country, or driving on slippery roads in the snow, or getting lost in the forest or in a new city without your phone. And then there are those small ways that the fear of death manifests. And these perhaps are the most significant for us in a sashin like this. To notice our small fears, and are those connected in some way to a fear of death or a fear, fear of failure, like embarrassment or shame, jealousy, wanting to fit in, so compromising integrity or lying in some way, trying to make oneself appear different than 
we are, needing to be right or in control in most situations, being busy, feeling uneasy about having too much unstructured time, anxiety, worry, self-doubt. These are fears that keep us from taking risks and you could say keep us from truly living, from truly being ourselves. And I think that's, that's a certain kind of fear of death. I'm not afraid of death as long as everything stays exactly as it is and I am in control. Another way to look into this fear of death is to pay attention, and Sashin is a really good uh, laboratory for this, is to pay attention with how you do with uncertainty and ambiguity (laughs) or the unknown. So this isn't meant to be a self-criticizing project, but just to watch when uncertainty arises, whether it's in meditation or in orioki, or being in this new building, or during work practice, or during the breaks, how much letting go are you willing to participate in this week? How much are you willing to be in the unknown, to let go of some of that control? And to notice when you are holding on, what are you holding on to and why? Myth and story have carried us as humans across the bridge of living and dying. Perhaps this is part of the reason why the Buddha's parinirvana is inspiring. Death is on display, naked, in your face. Not something to be feared, but as Zen teacher Fuho said, the Buddha's death is the culmination of their teaching. The body of the Buddha unbounded. All composite things are subject to vanish. The Buddha proclaims to their students as his last teaching, practice with earnestness. All compounded things are subject to vanish. All compounded things are subject to vanish. In this epic, as Fuho called the Parinibbana Sutta, we encounter the humble Buddha, body unbinding as they continue to teach the Dharma. There is a beautiful passage in this sutta. I think. Fuho and I are just going to give our favorite parts of the sutta, so you're not going to get the whole thing, but someday you might read it. But there's this beautiful passage where Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, who in the sutta itself really vies for um, the position of protagonist next to the Buddha. He's mentioned probably just as much as the Buddha in this, in this sutta. He's right by the Buddha's side the entire time. He had this auditory memory and could remember everything that the Buddha said. And so a lot of the Pali suttas start with, thus have I heard. And that's Ananda relaying what he heard the Buddha say. So 
Ananda has been at the Buddha's side, attending to him as his body is unbinding, asking him questions, acting as a bouncer when other people want to get close to the Buddha. Yet at some point during the sutta, Ananda takes leave of the Buddha and goes into the Vihara, which is the dwelling place. And the Buddha inquires, where is Ananda? He's been by my side. So I'll read from the sutta. Then the venerable Ananda went into the Vihara and leaned against the doorpost and wept and wept. I am still but a learner and still have to strive for my own perfection. But alas, my master, my teacher, who was so compassionate towards me, is about to pass away. And the Blessed One spoke to the bhikkhu, saying, Where, bhikkhus, is Ananda? The venerable Ananda Lord has gone into the Vihara, and there stands leaning against the doorpost and weeping. I am still a learner and still have to strive for my own perfection. But alas, my master, who is so compassionate towards me, is about to pass away. Then the Blessed One asked a certain bhikkhu to bring the venerable Ananda to him, saying, Go, bhikkhu, and say to Ananda, Friend Ananda, the master calls you. So be it, Lord. And that bhikkhu went and spoke to the venerable Ananda as the Blessed One had asked him to. And the venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One, bowed down to him, and sat on one side. Then the Blessed One spoke to the venerable Ananda, saying, Enough, Ananda. Do not grieve. Do not lament. For have I not taught from the very beginning that with all that is dear and beloved, there must be change, separation, and severance of that which is born come into being, compounded and subject to decay, how can one say, may it not come to dissolution? There can be no such state of things. Now for a long time, Ananda, you have served the Tathagata with loving kindness in deed, word, and thought, graciously, pleasantly, with a whole heart and beyond measure. Great good have you gathered, Ananda. Now you should put forth energy and soon you too, will be free from the taints. I will always love this passage because it reveals again more of the humanity of the Sangha, of the story of the Buddha's passing, Ananda's grief, Ananda's humanity, his love for his teacher, his reliance on his teacher, And Ananda's grief is expressed in the sutta somewhat selfishly, but that's also so human, right? When we grieve, it's a mixture of love and loss. And what about me? It's hard to let go of someone without thinking, how's it going to affect me? What's my life going to be like? We tend to do this as humans. We worry. We try to predict the future. We know what the past has been like with this person. And so we try to predict the future and they're not there. And now there's more uncertainty. So if we tend towards worry, we will worry. The Buddha's dying, Ananda says, that means I'm going to be unenlightened forever. You can hear that in his, in his lament. 
Sometimes we can't imagine life on the other side of something big like that. And so we grieve the future that we assumed we would have. Grief is natural. And we have to let grief have its own time. And it's important to notice when our grief turns into self-pity. When do we cling to the sadness and start relating to the future through the eyes of what could have been, what should have been? Dharma practice teaches us how to be with what is, not cool and indifferently, but how to be with what is, with compassion and kindness and responsiveness and love. The unpredictability of people, situations, the world, how to be, how to be with that, that unpredictability. To love something or someone means willingly letting oneself make commitments to that person or that thing, knowing perhaps in our minds that we don't know what's going to happen. This is the vulnerability brought forth by death, by being compounded things. Contemplating impermanence doesn't mean never making commitments so that you never get hurt. It means staying with the changing nature of experience, which includes unpredictable losses as well as unpredictable openings into grace and wonder. With all loss, isn't that true? Say a relationship ends and there's the loss of the future plans that you had with that person. But simultaneously with that, a big space opens up in your life. There's an unbinding. You get tastes of the unbounded nature of reality. Oh, things aren't fixed the way I thought they were. The present moment opens up. The mind can't fill in the future right away. It tries sometimes. But that ungraspable nature of reality is felt deeply in those moments of loss, whatever the loss is. This can be unmooring. It also can be grace-filled. We might try to fill it with doubt, like Ananda did, oh, I'll never get enlightened. Or I'll be alone forever. I'll never get a job as good as that one. Or, Everyone always abandons me. But perhaps in this situation, Ananda needed the Buddha to die in order for him to take his practice deeper. When he was with the Buddha, he was able to do a certain level of practice, to sit in the Buddha's presence, to observe his every move, his every word, his conduct, how he responded to different teachers and people, to reflect deeply on the teachings. But after the Buddha's passing, his mind that had been so busy remembering the suttas, perhaps it was able to relax, to open. The uncertainty of what to do next, the emptiness of purpose or function left by the Buddha's passing, providing perhaps a space to sink into, the unbounded space Ananda came to take refuge in. I also appreciate in this passage that the Buddha con compliments Ananda. He gives him faith, faith in himself. He, he recognizes his beautiful qualities. 
This is something we need to do for ourselves. Compassion is such important medicine when facing loss, any kind of loss. We will face loss during this session. Please practice compassion. To truly inquire into the nature of life, we must be grounded in compassion, else it's cruel. Fuho and I have been emphasizing relaxing the body and mind. The cause of suffering is clinging, the Buddha taught. We, as modern humans, are busy bodies. It is an act of compassion to let your body and mind relax, to let your body and mind relax. It's not going to happen the first time you try. It might not happen the first day or two or three of sashin, but keep letting your body and mind relax. Be gentle and kind to yourself as the foundation to your awakening. Relaxing the body and mind facilitates concentration. We allow all that habit energy to unwind, to unbind. So many teachers speak of the culmination of practice as a relaxed and open mind, a relaxed and open heart. I've been reflecting on Thich Nhat Hanh's life and teachings. Fred Epsteiner, who's one of Hogan Roshi's friends, uh, Hogan told me this, said of Thich Nhat Hanh, he never hurried. He never hurried. I hesitated to look up the story of his death, knowing that in the back of my mind I wanted rainbows or you know, rainbow body is something in Buddhism that great teachers attain. I wanted to hear him like speak for the first time in six years and give a profound teaching before he died. But there isn't that much information right now about the actual event of his death, at least that I could find. He died in, in Vietnam. But I did find a eulogy written by his students, and so perhaps Thich Nhat Hanh's great teaching of his death is its humility and anonymity in some way. And yet he was such a profound presence on this earth. So I'll share some of what his uh, students say. This is from the eulogy. Dear Thai, your deep bodhicitta which began in the heart of a little child from central Vietnam, has grown into a vast force of action across East and West. You met your hermit at the well. You saw the kind of Zen master you wanted to become. You had a dream and dear Thai, you have realized that dream. At every turn you took the path less traveled, the difficult path. Throughout your life, you encountered acute moments of loss and injustice, like when you were exiled or heard the news of your students being shot on the riverbank or when your passport was canceled or when your program to rescue thousands of boat people from the South China Sea, sea was shut down. And yet you met these moments with the strength of your mindfulness practice and your indestructible destructible courage, compassion, and clarity. Dear Thai, despite all the di difficulties, you never gave up on hope, 
or on this path or on your vision of creating a practice that could truly help the world. You found ways to build Sangha out of all the non-Sangha elements around you. You overcame your gentle shyness to open your heart to embrace new people, cultures, and perspectives. Dear Thai, we see you sitting in meditation on the podium, so profoundly at peace, natural and relaxed, still and unshakable. We see your one-pointed mind as you offer incense at the altar and your deep concentration as you touch the earth. We see you sitting in silence on Vulture Peak as you watch the sunset, a true soulmate of the Buddha, and we see you sitting on the Deer Park Mountain with the Sangha as you watch the sunrise over the ridge. We see you walking. You arrive in every step. You are the master of every step, walking in freedom, one step, one breath. And we see you walking with the freedom of a Buddha. You have shown us the healing power of collective energy, and you have shown us that with a Sangha, peace becomes possible. We see you teaching in the Dharma Hall. We feel the silent healing tears, and we hear the hall erupting in laughter at the story of the hammer and the two hands. You have shown patience and compassion for every one of your students, meeting us right where you are. You knew when to be gentle, when to tease, when to challenge us. Dear Thai, the Dharma sings through your poems and calligraphies. Their truths touch our hearts and lift our spirits. You have lived each day in beauty, no matter what adversity you faced. You know how to take refuge in Mother Earth. Even when you faced the calamity of your stroke, you knew how to take refuge in nature and your beloved community. With immense compassion, you stayed with us, never giving up, teaching us that even the most challenging situations, it is always possible to cherish life's beauty and the miracle of being alive. Dear Thai, we know you are much more than your physical body. You are your teachings, your sangha, your immense compassionate action in the world. You are present wherever one of your students is taking a mindful breath or mindful step. You're also present in your cosmic body, just as the cosmos is present in you. And so every time we enjoy the golden daffodils or the purple bamboo, the view from the mountain peak or the gentle creek winding its way to the ocean, we will enjoy these wonders with your eyes and with your smile. You have said that time is stilled in eternity where love and the beloved are one. Time is stilled in eternity where love and the beloved are one. Dear Thai, you are present here with us this very moment as we climb the hill of the 21st century together. What you have not yet completed, we promise to complete for you. We would like to express our deep love and gratitude as we make the vow to carry your teachings, compassion, and insight far into the future. This is a legendary moment. This is a moment of continuation.
When Maizumi Roshi was asked, what continues after you die? He said, the vow continues.